This is an ABC podcast. The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders past and present. Jenka, Bula Bula, Kia Ora, Bongiorno, and welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. My name is Emma Race, and I'm thrilled to be here. It is a very rare week when D's and Blues have a September swagger in May, and while suns and swans win and spark storylines that turn the blowtorch on some traditional top eight residents, there's been as much interesting on the field as off. In the Sanctum lineup today are three of the very finest who are going to help me do the talking. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hello, it's Lucy Race. Hi, it's Nicole Hayes. Hi, it's Julia Kier. Hello, ladies. We've got a massive show lined up for you today. A year ago, almost a year ago to the day, Lee Russell resigned from her post as CEO of Swimming Australia. At the time, she said, no one has adjusted to different styles of leadership. And the truth is that people don't like being told what to do by a woman. Today, we get the chance to talk to her about women in sport leadership. And I'm so looking forward to that. Also this week, the legacy of Jacinda Barclay was celebrated at the Giants BNF with a new award named in her honour, while the AFL thanked Jacinda and her family as she was the first woman in Australia to donate her brain to the Brain Bank. We're going to speak to Dr Alan Pierce about the findings and the depth of gratitude that we all owe Jacinda. But firstly, let's get into some incredible highlights. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Is your heart beating true, Nicole Hayes? Look, I have to admit, I've got a lot of close family and friends who are Melbourne um, fans and to see them just get to enjoy the the beautiful football they're playing. They obviously uh, beat North in Hobart by 30 points. The score suggests, you know, it was a, a looser game than it was. It was in contest the whole way. Really exciting highlights, you know, uh, Bailey Fritch with his six goals, um, three goals, two to Pickett, and Petrarca is just a delight, like watching him play. But Petraka's just been signed for seven years. He has. So the Demons are fans will be really pleased about that. I haven't that. even signed my kids for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> I think it really shows uh, enormous confidence in, for the rest of the players too. It's such a great statement by Christian. But my highlight is Ben Brown, who got to kick his very first goal for the Demons against his former side, North. Uh, and he ended up with two goals, one, and multiple assists. He was really uh, – he did uh, brought a lot to the game and, you know, we love him at the Outer Sanctum. Nicole, you're a writer. How beautifully was that written, that it was against North Melbourne and that the Ds hit the top of the ladder? I know. It, it really couldn't have been written better and, you know, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Um, I was enjoying Twitter because it's just been it's just been a delight and this was great from Josh Kay. The last time Melbourne was on top of the AFL ladder, Twitter didn't exist. Rafa had zero French titles. Buddy had kicked four goals. Gary Ablett Jr. had six career Brownlow votes. Swans hadn't won a flag in 71 and a half years. Cats hadn't won a flag in 41 and a half years. The Dons hadn't won a final in seven months. He's put that in there because he's an Essendon supporter. But I will remind you to bring it back to a bit of pop culture. The song that was topping the charts was Paulini's Angel Eyes. And if you don't remember it, you're not alone. I have no recollection of that song whatsoever. But what I do remember is at the time I was the host of Inside Idol. Uh, on, and so I knew Paulini quite well. And what it reminded me is that at that time I bought some makeup brushes and I'm still using them and I've never washed them. Oh, I'm going to jail for that, aren't I? <laughs> 
what were your highlights? Oh, clearly Hawthorne. <laughs> no, <laughs> terrible. No. Don't mention the war. Tricked you. Um, my highlight was Shay Bolton. <laughs> Worst trick ever. <laughs> oh, look, you know, you've got to have a bit of humour, don't you? I really do love watching Shay Bolton play and I loved his game against the Bulldogs. There was He had lots of almost moments. I think he almost took mark of the year. But he also got the results. He, I think, had 22 disposals. He kicked three goals one. He is such an exciting player and I love his unpredictability. He kicked the sealer with about five minutes to go in the game and just managed to find space off a stoppage and sold some candy. It also reminded me that we haven't really been doing commentary watch this year, but I did hear in that game the term foot candy. It's not going away. <laughs> and I just wonder whether at some point we should ask people who don't follow the game what they think it means when somebody sells some foot candy. Oh, that's so disgusting. It makes me feel sick. It's it really actually along, along the same lines as your makeup brushes. It really is. Hey, while we're talking about Commentary Watch, it was revealed to us this week by uh, netballing great Liz Ellis that she, her, she lives in fear that she'll end up on the segment Commentary Watch when she's commentating the netball. <laughs> so shout out to you, Liz. You're safe for another week. Julia, what was your highlight? Look, firstly, I need to ask what's a makeup brush. But secondly, <laughs> look, my highlight, of course are the best and fairest results that are coming through for AFLW. You know that I'm clinging to it still uh, like a girlfriend that's been broken up with but that won't let go. So um, it was great to see a Melbourne tie with uh, Karen Paxman and Tyler Hanks tying for that best and fairest. Elise Parker at GWS, uh, Jamin Garner at, at North Melbourne, Ed Marinoff, Ali Anderson, just some real stalwarts of footy getting a best and fairest in really great seasons for their clubs, but also an interesting trend with a lot of the younger teams that we're seeing young players win. So Lauren Arends, um, Bella Lewis, Monconti, Amy McDonald. I think there's an interesting story you could tell there about players' development uh, happening across the league. A really interesting story this week came out about what the AFLW season might look like next year. Gee, did all our Christmases come at once? They're suggesting there might be two seasons of AFLW in one calendar year. We will talk about that shortly. Julia, I can't wait to get your thoughts on that. But for now, let's roll up our sleeves and melee ladies. I'm Kiara Bowers and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. There was an article that came out and the, the, the report of the findings of Jacinda Barclay's brain trauma um, after she donated her brain to the brain bank, for which we must be very grateful to her and her family. And I have found this story incredibly confronting because she was someone we knew. She was very young. Um, she's the first sportswoman in Australia to donate her brain to the brain bank. So the information that we're getting because of her is going to save other lives. We've seen um, lots of information coming out, especially, Lucy, there's been some new technology developments that have also been revealed this week. There has, and I know from the junior league that my son plays in, the Yarra Junior Football League in Victoria, that they are making some changes in terms of offering some technology. So there's this new technology called iGuide, and what it is is a non-intrusive 10-second eye test that evaluates the severity of a head injury following an incident on the field. And the aim of it is to generate some objective data that will help parents make more informed return to play decisions for their child. It's really interesting, I think, to see how leagues, as you know, even down to junior leagues, are grappling with this, with this issue and trying to find ways to support people through it. 
Dr. Alan Pierce is an Associate Professor in Neurophysiology at La Trobe University and he joins us now. Firstly, Alan, welcome to the Outer Sanctum. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Jacinda was the first Australian sportswoman to donate her brain. Just how huge is the debt of gratitude that we owe her for these findings? We can't thank um, her and her family uh, enough, and I guess just to uh, just to just to put it out there, I'm actually a, a friend of the family as well. So uh, it's you know it's been a difficult time for everyone, and uh, but uh, the family have certainly have uh, felt that you know they've they've helped progress science as well with this. So it's it's not just in vain. Uh, hi, Alan. It's Julia here. We know that there is a gender imbalance in the brain bank data. So what can we do to address this? Yeah, it's always it's historically been um, biased and skewed towards men simply because of the fact that contact sports until fairly recently has been a male-dominated uh, issue. And, um, you know, in saying that, you know, with my research, I've always called for a balance between males and females, but it has just I guess, generated more men coming forward than than women. But certainly in the last couple of years now when, you know, I'm doing research and and calling for participants, I'm now starting to see more women come forward, which is great. And I think what will do, what will happen is there'll be a sort of an organic increase in the number of women um, coming to be involved in research. Um, But I think it's still important that we we sort of promote that we encourage women to come forward and and be involved in research, having female-focused research studies, so looking at injury profiles of of women, not just both men and women, so just really focusing in on on female concussions and and having very specific questions around that to encourage um, participation in research. So, yeah, it's it's a combination of both... um, I guess, organic uh, people coming forward, but also having having that uh, encouragement for uh, specific uh, questions around that. Alan, it's Lucy here. Uh, look, we know of at least one junior football league who is using what they call iGuard digital assessment to provide extra data if a player experiences a head knock or a suspected concussion. I'm wondering what role can new technology play in the treatment and understanding of concussion, especially for, for kids who are playing yeah, so the uh, Yarra Junior Football League have uh, implemented the eye guide to to basically, um, I guess, complement or supplement the medical diagnosis. So the first thing is that uh, technology is not there to replace the doctor, and I think that's the most important thing. That it's still a medical judgment; it's a clinical diagnosis because it's a neurological injury. Um, <clears throat> but having technologies can actually provide objective measures that sometimes. Um, even the most stringent medical doctor can can be still open to some form of interpretation of, of um, you know uh, symptom reporting and, and uh, symptom observation, um, and we see that time and time again when when suddenly a player seems to return when when they've had a concussion. So it's trying to just help give the doctor more confidence in their own medical judgment. So these objective markers will start to I think come in more and more, and I know that with say um, eye movement technologies it's a very good indicator of brain function I know that World Rugby National Rugby League NRL are, are using eye guide technology and other technologies as well so I think it can only be a good thing um, but certainly not a replacement for the doctor Hi Alan it's Nicole here um, what would you like to see someone like the AFL 
and um, the Australian Rugby Union or the NRL, what sorts of things could they be doing that they're not doing right now to better tackle this issue? Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great question because uh, uh, we we see a lot of uh, I guess reports that are using technologies, but we we still are, are very limited to a doctor's diagnosis. So something I would like to see is some sort of um, supporting evidence that a player has been returned because. Um, it may well be, you know, I've, I've spoken to a few doctors who said, well, you know, we have players who have, um, you know, they, they faint, um, they have you know, blood pressure issues or whatever, but genetic, and uh, it looks like they've been concussed, but they, they haven't been concussed. So um, it makes us look bad when we send a player back on because they weren't concussed and people obviously, you know, armchair neurologists uh, and whatnot um, are, are screaming blue murder on, on social media. So it would be good, I think, to help justify the, the medical decision um, and, and give a little bit more transparency to why a player was diagnosed with concussion or alternatively they weren't. Alan, we talk a lot about the role of sport and protecting the brain in sport when people are professional athletes. There's other professions that I imagine impact on brain health as well. And as you would well know, being a friend of the family, Jacinda was a deep sea diver and she, she worked at times out on oil rigs. Are there, is there any kind of connection between things like living in a pressurised environment or being underwater and at depth that also can affect the brain? Uh, you're correct that uh, Jacinda was doing deep sea diving, and um, and there is unfortunately only limited research at this stage on on the effects because uh, there has been some observations of of uh, deep sea divers having some cognitive impairments and and whatnot. But uh, the the research seems to be quite limited. But in the in the limited research, it appears that you you need to do ex- an extreme amount of diving. So you know, well over two thousand hours under under pressure water more than 500 dives a year. So it, uh, it it certainly seems that what we have seen, I guess, which Cinder's brain was more likely to be due to repetitive knocks um, and repetitive impacts rather than um, occupational hazards such as deep sea diving. But it's right across the board that we have to address brain injuries because it's one of the most common injuries uh, worldwide. Alan, the biggest or one of the biggest challenges um, that in terms of diagnosing CTE or other brain injury is the fact that the patient has to have passed, that it's usually diagnosed through autopsy. Are there developments in the area of, um, you know, finding diagnostic tools or research around living brains? Trying to identify CTE in living people is the, is the next frontier for us um, because uh, having the ability to... Uh, look at or, or identify CTE can then, you know, allow for rehabilitation and, and therapeutics that can help um, possibly, you know, extend quality of life. Um, just like other uh, neurodegenerative diseases, there are is no cure, but uh, there are certainly things that we're doing now to try and prolong quality of life before the inevitable. So it is very important to. Uh, you know, and, and labs around the world are, are trying to do that. And, and probably the leading um, laboratory at the moment is Boston University, where they are trying to image CT using a technique known as positron emission tomography, where you, you, you inject a, a particular radioactive dye, it links to the, uh, the protein called tau, and then where that lights up under the scanner can show you where potentially CTE 
is and differentiate that also from other dementias like Alzheimer's. Alan, thank you so much for spending time with us today and thank you for um, talking about something that must be incredibly painful given that you know the family well. I think the whole AFLW community is reeling from reading these reports. So it's, um, it's really kind of you to give your expertise to us in this moment. Thanks very much for having me and, and certainly you know, the family are very appreciative of everyone's uh, support and love. That was Dr Alan Pierce joining us. Ladies, another article that dropped this week that is of absolute importance and consequence to us all is that it's looking like the AFLW seasons might get rolled. There might be two seasons next year to roll in the four new clubs and to bring the competition into um, what would be called free air because what we've learnt is that it's the men's game that monsters AFLW, not tennis and cricket necessarily. Are you guys ready for AFLW Christmas Eve, (laughs) Julia? You know that I do love as much AFLW as possible. I do wonder about the viability of doing that, about players. We know that a lot of players take annual leave and so on, and now they're going to have to somehow do that twice in one year. I I guess we're seeing that it would be short-term pain for that one year and then we would roll on from them. It's starting in December. But the other big thing, you mentioned cricket, and I think we've forgotten about cricket, um, that – I don't know if you know this, but a cricket pitch is in the middle of an oval um, and you can't play football on it. So there, I feel like there's a lot of domino effects and I'm currently coaching in the VFLW and this is our first year of our season being brought forward to align with AFLW. And I wonder then, what does that then mean for the state leagues? Because it actually affects every league going down. So, you know, we've got girls on our list who then play Div 1, but that doesn't start until April. So it rolls on and on and on. And I think that if that change did happen, it would have a lot of effect about overall development of female players. It's interesting because in this article, it's posited that the the reason that they're looking to make this change is to, one, get that clean air, especially around media coverage, but also because there's been uh, it's been difficult for clubs to really look after both programs when they're running at the same time. And there is some impact, I think, from staffing losses after COVID. I would wonder whether we need to have a more macro view and think about visibility and think about investment in a very, very big way. And I keep coming back to some stories that I've seen globally about soccer, particularly the Sky Blues from um, Jersey, an article in the New Yorker where they talked about investment really turning around the way that that team has now is now operating and also the Colombian women's soccer team that was basically they were going to cancel the season and they came in and said, well, no, hang on, let's engage fans, let's make fans think that if we're a true fan of a club that we support men's and women's soccer and that investment has turned it around. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a commission meeting next week and also it's looking like the CBA might roll in the men's and the women's um, needs and wants together. I think that it's not going to go forward easily. I think this is going to be a really challenging and difficult time. It's an absolute watch this space and I'll be intrigued to know what the commission come out with. But I do feel like this article was softening the potential impact of the fall. Softening the cricket pitch? (laughs) Another story that has absolutely not escaped our eyes is Twitter is very vocal on this and Nicole Hayes at Caught Your Eye 
Dugowie keeps getting brought up by the media and we fastidiously go over every detail of his life, but there are certain details that are always conveniently omitted. Yeah, look, I spent quite a bit of time going through the all the articles that referenced Dugowie's current drop in form. Every aspect of his life, you know, whether the injury or the concussion from last week might be affecting his um, performance. Uh, there's been conversations about whether he's putting in at training. Um, is he being played in the right spot? Uh, are teammates kicking to him? Um, and, you know, is he he's not stepping forward as a leader, that he's not standing up as, you know, he has to decide what sort of footballer he wants to be. The one thing nobody is mentioning is the fact that he's currently on bail. It's interesting that there's this disconnect about what people listen to that the fans are talking about and what they're not. And But we do see the AFL and clubs listen when fans talk. And we have seen change this week with them bringing back the Thursday night team announcement um, so that people can tip and get their super coach in and that fans are going to be able to sit in their reserved seats. So it's it's interesting which ones get the attention. And clubs and organisations ignore fans at their peril. We have saw the sort of short-lived 48 hours of the European Super League. That was the biggest, the most powerful soccer clubs in the UK and Europe decided to set something up and the fans said no. There was also a four-day social media boycott by a number of teams, clubs, sporting organisations and even some media organisations through the UK and Europe. That really got me thinking, do you think one day soon we might see a global sit-out from all athletes of all different codes globally to really push something. Maybe it would be climate change. Maybe it would be racial vilification. Imagine that. It actually could happen these days. It's what exists for the fans. It's fans have all the power if they want to use it. I'm Ali Blackburn and you're listening to the Yadda Sanctum. Lee Russell was until last year the CEO of Swimming Australia. She's held senior executive roles at multiple AFL clubs and is an expert in governance, people and culture, development and leadership in sport. She's passionate about women's voices in all of sports places and she's taking it on herself to answer the question, where are all the women in sport via a new initiative? We welcome Lee to the Outer Sanctum. How are you? Great, thank you. Hi, everyone. Lee, last year, it was almost exactly a year ago that you left um, Swimming Australia and we were all in lockdown and I remember reading an article at the time and you said no one's adjusted to a different style of leadership and the truth is that people don't like being told what to do by a woman and I just wanted to call you, either hug you or sit down with a big glass of scotch and say, tell me all about it. (laughs) The honesty of it stung. How deliberate were your words? Uh, well, um, I always speak from the heart, I guess, so I probably wasn't thinking too much about, I guess, what I was saying, but more just the feeling of, of what my experience had been. But I, I can't say that everybody probably wanted to sit down with me and give me a hug after that. Those, those comments um, did jar people quite a bit. And um, what I find, particularly every time you talk to, uh, talk about women in leadership or women more generally and, and sort of where it's at in sport is it, it is a topic that can polarise people and people do have a lot of emotion about it. So um, it is sometimes very difficult to, to talk about. Uh, I try to not make it difficult to talk about, but certainly, you know, we still are in that spot where it does make people feel pretty uncomfortable. 
Lee, it's Lucy here. We have talked theoretically a lot on this show about what it is to be the the first in, in an organisation or, or the only if you're a minority group. What do you think the answer is? Is the answer quotas? Uh, yeah, but the first thing is really quite um, an interesting concept and I know you've all talked about it so much and thank you so much for keeping that conversation alive. You know what? I'm one of those that um, I'm sick and tired of talking about the first, and I know that I was one of the first in some shape and form, particularly in AFL. But, you know, that that for me was like 15 years ago now, and we're still talking about first. So that that really, as a metric, tells me that we need to do something different. And it, I think quotas are only part of the, the, the problem or the solution to the, to the problem. And it is, it is quite complex, you know, to really get change and sustain change. So while we see women, you know, first woman this, first woman that, often they're still in a very isolated position. And also we're not really reaching into how they might lead differently. What we're asking women still is to lead like a bloke. And, you know, you can be there basically, but we, we want you to kind of be like what we've had before, which, which, I think we're at a point in time where we we don't want to lead like men. We want to we want to actually reach into this thing called leadership. So, I, I think quotas are part of it, but I think that the, the the issues are a bit deeper if we're going to really get sustained change. Since you left Swimming Australia, Gerald Richter's also left Basketball Australia. We're at a crisis point, I would see, because women are being pushed through lots of programs. They're really well educated, but they're still not getting those top jobs. And when they do get them, they're leaving. Do you guys have a uh, secret WhatsApp group where you all talk about the issues? We actually do. <laughs> <laughs> Who's in it, Lee? Who is in oh, it? Tell I us everything. I can't reveal the secret, but it's the, the, the powerful and strong women of Australian leadership in sport. No, it's um, it actually, we do have a secret WhatsApp group, but, but it was born out of, um, I guess, sheer frustration during COVID that, we weren't seeing women's voices anywhere when we were talking about the future of sport in mainstream media, I should say. And and so, you know, again, it came down to women needing to support women through what was, you know, such an extraordinary time and still is in so many ways. You are totally right. We are at crisis point um, in terms of seeing and, and really even seeing the pipeline of leaders come through, um, female leaders, that is, in 30 years, uh, from a national sporting organisation perspective, we've moved nowhere further than 9 to 11% of all NSOs um, at any one time having female leaders uh, as, as their head of their organisation. I mean, again, that metric says whatever we're doing isn't working. Um, it might be working in some ways. You mentioned education and, you know, I always say to people... We are the most educated women on the in the in the world. The problem is the system and the structure hasn't changed, and so we we become more educated and more educated. I've got five different university degrees, and I know tons of women that are kind of in that similar boat. And I don't think any of that education has really amounted to uh, you know being able to shift the dial on those numbers. It's not to say education's not important. I certainly don't want to give that impression. But, um, you know, we, we've had 18 years of women leaders in sports grants, in grants from uh, the ASC. We've had lots of different programs that have focused on fixing the women, um, 
but actually it's we need to focus on fixing the system um, that women aren't the problem. Lee, it's Nicole here. I, I just wonder about the competitive nature of sport. If there's something about that and the the fact that leadership is, has been traditionally like a competitive space as well, how do you unpack that? How do you break down that dynamic? Yeah, it's it's it's. I think it's looking at what kind of leaders we want to run these organisations. Because you're quite right, Nick, the, the competitive spirit of high-performance sport and, and sport in general really does play into that. But I think, you know, women who love sport um, also love the, the competitive side of sport. And, you know, we take that on when we're working in it. But I, I, the, the whole concept of, you know, what is the skill set that we want a leader to have um, I remember, you know, being interviewed for my Swimming Australia role. One of the questions I was asked right at the end was, but, you know, I can see you've got this, that and everything else, but I just don't know if you're tough enough. <sighs> you know, and I, I was, um, I guess I was taken quite aback of, of, of that, but also it really told me loads about where that person's mindset was in relation to leadership. You know, that whole concept of what leadership is really needs to change. And we've focused so long on the competitive nature of, you know, cutting deals and um, making sure we're bigger than Ben-Hur and all those sorts of things. We've actually lost sight of the fact that sport is about people, nothing else. Um, we have nothing else unless we are fantastic people leaders. We are creating the culture and conditions by which high-performance sport can thrive. And yet that, those things seem to be minimised. In, in kind of the current structure. Lee, it's Julia here. Speaking of, you know, who we've got around the decision-making table, we saw last week that at a Premier Longboard Surfing Competition in Sydney's Northern Beaches that one of the, the winners of the uh, women's competition, Lucy Small, called out in her acceptance speech that her prize money was going to be less than half of her male counterpart. And following that, they changed... Uh, They've changed the prize money going forward. But it took kind of a public embarrassment and a public backlash to make that happen. But does it really need to get to that point? Can't we have the decision makers actually thinking about gender equity before it gets to the acceptance speech? Oh, you, you just love to think that boards or um, leadership teams would run everything through a gender equity wash, you know, and, and before they kind of put a rubber stamp on anything because... In this day and age, it seems absolutely crazy that we're still talking about inequitable prize money for events. Um, interesting, there was a there was a run around the tan a couple of weeks ago, male and female races, and you know there was a bit of uh, Twitter noise about whether the prize money was equitable between the the winners of, of those races, and I still haven't been able to get to the bottom of that. It takes people at the moment to call it out because for some reason, it still seems so unconscious uh, to leadership teams to, to make sure that these things aren't a problem. And and so I think, yes, we, we still need to uh, call it out. I mean, I think people are trying to call it out in a very respectful way, but when people aren't listening, the, the knock at the door becomes louder. Lee, we could talk to you all day. We've got a million questions, but I am going to change gear a little bit here. Um, you are in the unique position of not only having this extraordinary career in sport, but you're also a spouse <laughs> and you have the unique experience of being in the hubs um, during the AFLM season. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and the gendered nature of how that was managed? 
Yeah, it was really interesting because, yes, I, I have, um, for better or for worse, uh, apparently it was part of the marriage vows that I um, take on the, the role of being a supporter of uh, my husband, who his AFL career and he's been he's been around sort of that, that world now for, you know, close to 20 years and maybe even more. And so, of course, the hub environment last year was one that uh, we shifted the whole family up into for, for quite a few months. Uh, raising the kids and and trying to homeschool and trying to be a CEO at the same time, you know, within the confines of a hotel room. And I guess what I'd say um, to all of that is I found it extremely difficult and I, I know others did as well. That's not to say that, uh, you know, people outside the hub environment weren't um, having their own crosses to bear. Um, what became apparent to me was that it was there was a very gendered approach being taken in terms of how... I guess women were treated in that environment, both from an internal and external facing, um, you know, situation. And uh, look, it was it was a it was a challenging time, um, but it certainly wasn't as the media were portraying it. You know, where's everybody sitting around a pool drinking a pina colada? <laughs> um, I found some of the treatment of women. Um, to be absolutely horrible. You know, the, the, when Brooke, the Brooke Cotchin thing happened, um, people just were rancid about her behaviour. And yet there were, there were many other things happening within that hub environment that were equal to or worse than, I would, I would argue. Um, but the, the focus and spotlight became on what the women were doing or not doing. And I guess it, for me, it, it kind of lent into the broader narrative of how women are perceived in the AFL and how they're spoken about. I mean, one of the big things that I think needs to, to really just stop today is the, the concept of the WAG and, and using that term to belittle and degrade women um, and the role of the support that they play to these people who are trying to perform at the highest level. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty complicated process, I think, for families and um, you know, there has been some collateral damage come out of that environment for sure. Lee, before we let you go, you're quite passionate about the visibility of women in sport and you've got a project that people can um, have a really connected interface with, which is the Women in Sport project on Instagram. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Yes, um, definitely. So, you know, coming out of my role and just having, you know, enormous amount of conversation with everybody about what we were going to do to address the problem of not being able to see women's contribution in sport, I decided to, um, in the vein of Kristen Ferguson's, uh, Kristen Ferguson, I should say, uh, hashtag celebrating women, she ran a campaign a few years ago that really just ran for 12 months but talked about women's stories and highlighted the enormous talent and, and incredible kind of women right around the globe that we have doing extraordinary things. And so I picked that idea up, obviously talked to her about um, whether I could, could um, not reinvent the wheel and um, created the Women Leaders of Sport campaign, hashtag here she is. And we're on Insta and Twitter and the, the real basis of it is twofold. One is that, you know, I want to really increase the visibility of the, the depth of talent and answer that age-old question about where the women are. You know, I've, I've been... Um, fortunate enough, obviously, to be in a variety of roles and often get called um, by different people to say, oh, look, we're looking for a, a marketing manager. Do you know any? Um, and, you know, my, my answer is always, do I know any? I know heaps of them, but we just can't see them. 
And so I'm really trying to play my role in increasing that visibility. And I've been so uh, inspired myself by the unbelievable amount of depth that we have in sport in terms of what you actually can do in sport, but also these incredibly talented people who for the first time potentially are telling just a little snippet of their story. And it's just such a privilege each day to, to um, you know, get them out on the into the social media sphere. The other, the other uh, you know, uh, thing I wanted to do is really create um, something for good in the social media space because often that's a pretty challenging space for women to, to navigate. So it's pretty safe. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it really just celebrates all women, you know, the diversity of women and the richness of their, their talent and experience across the, across the sector. And um, I'm coming for all of you, actually, as well. <laughs> I, 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 note, I note that none of you have given me your profiles yet, so I will get on to that. Yeah, the Instagram is women underscore of underscore sport underscore. Lee Russell, you're always a treat. Thank you so much for leading the way and for throwing the ladder down. We've enjoyed hearing all of your insights today on the Outer Sanctum. Keep fighting the good fight. Thank you, everyone, and thank you for the work that you do. Thanks so much. I'm Chelsea Roffey. You're listening to The Outer Sanctum. Okay, it is almost time for us to get out of here. Um, But last week we did a shout-out The Outer and it's been absolutely divine. I want to shout-out Geordie Hess at South Melbourne Footy Club. He just played his 100th game. And a massive shout-out to the Newtown Breakaways who are celebrating 20 years kicking off this uh, weekend on the 8th of May. Heaps of foundation players coming back. The Newtown Breakaways are one of the most extraordinary footy clubs in this country. Um, Thank you so much to you all for what you do and what you've put into the game over the last 20 years celebrate and get those rainbows out. Lucy, you've got one. I do. This week, the West Footscray Roosters will honour an amazing woman when they play the Wyndham Vale Falcons. Both teams will wear purple socks and this is just one way that they will be celebrating the life of Jan Hinson, who sadly passed away from pancreatic cancer last year. Jan was a driving force behind the creation of the Roosters senior women's team. She was the team manager and in the words of those who knew her, she was the heart and soul of the club. She was known as the mother hen at the Roosters and was always on the sidelines at training and in games in her trademark knee-high boots, red lipstick and big earrings. In the past, she had organised breast cancer fundraising matches on Mother's Day and this weekend the Mother's Day match will be played in her honour and the club will be raising funds for Pancare, a very worthy charity if you're able to donate. So thank you, Kel, for letting us know about Jan. Massive salute to Jan and her teammates there. Also, Tiff Cherry is out playing for Williamstown. So if you see her running out in the blue and yellow, heckler from the sidelines. Um, I think it's about time for us to get out of here, but we would love to hear your stories, your shout-outs from the outer. Make sure you get in contact with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and rate and review us because it means the world to us. There's only one thing left to say, my friends, and that is... Go Go footy! Go footy!